You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. This is your host, Mike White, and I am talking today with Brian Wendorf, who is the festival director for the Chicago Underground Film Festival. They have been going on for 25 years now, and I have been fortunate to be a part of a few of those. This year, I'm especially going to be part of it because I am a festival judge this year. The festival proper is June 6th through the 10th. I encourage you to go over and check it out. You can get your tickets. You can find out more information about the movies, all those fun things over at cuff.org. That's C-U-F-F dot org. And if you're in the Chicagoland area, you can stop by and say hello to me. I'd love to meet you. And let's go ahead and play that interview right now. First, I want to know, how long has the Chicago Underground Film Festival been going on? This is our 25th year. Jay Blisnick and I started it working at a video store in Evanston, Illinois, called Video Adventure. It was Jay that had the idea to start the festival. He had been selling bootleg videos at horror film conventions, and his roommate at the time had made a low-budget like Super 8 short that he was selling on tape at shows. And he had gone to a famous Monsters of Filmland convention. I don't know exactly where it was. And he came back with, he had had this conversation with a guy named Hugh Gallagher, who was a zine publisher at the time, had a zine called Draculina. I guess they had had a conversation at this convention and the idea for a film festival in Chicago that would show these low-budget films that people were making and selling on tapes and things at the time. Uh, he came back and approached me about helping him put on the first festival, and it took a few uh, few askings before I agreed to kind of make sure I thought he was actually serious about what he was doing. Um, finally, I, I agreed kind of in the back of my mind when I said I would, do, would get involved. I kind of knew that I might still be here doing it 25 years later and i wasn't sure that he would but uh, <laughs> and that's kind of how it played out he jay was and uh, was involved for like the six years as director of the festival and you know in the early years we kind of were feeling out like what roles everybody involved was take i mean we often joked that we had barely even attended a film festival when we started one so we had to kind of figure out what well, what is what does that mean what are we doing <laughs> And it changed over the years, you know, in the very first years, there were very rigid budget restrictions on how much a film could cost. And that I kind of did away with that when I took over running the festival, because to me, what makes something an underground film has a lot less to do with how cheaply it was made and more have to do with like the ideas and the the content or styles of the filmmaking. I mean, that being said, most of the films we're showing are still made on very low, low budgets, but 
it's so hard to even know where to cap something. So I just don't try that anymore. Like I just let people submit the films that they are making. If they think that their film would fit in a festival like this, then we'll consider it. And, you know, we got 2,200 submissions this year. Um, whereas like the first year we were doing it, I think we had a little, a little less than 300. So films now come from all over the world. When we started, almost everything came from the U S I think our second year we had a film from England and maybe one other country in there. But these days, every, you know, if you can make a film there, we probably have seen a film come from it. So 25 years ago, did you picture yourself riding around in limousines with just tons of blow and, and hookers all around like you no. probably do today? <laughs> I mean, that's got to be the lifestyle <laughs> of a film festival. Right. right. Yeah. Um, I didn't picture it then, and I actually don't picture it now. <laughs> and that's okay. I don't think that that's even the lifestyle I want to live. I mean, I would mind making a little bit more money doing this thing that I love doing, but uh, I'm not trying to get rich off of this. I think anybody who thinks that film festival directors are outside of maybe Sundance and South Bay Southwest, I have no idea what, what the programmers at those festivals make. I imagine that they're making an okay living. I don't think any anybody in the film festival business is making, you know, Maybe the maybe who the programmers at Khan are writing around and limousines doing blow. <laughs> I'm definitely not. I'm I'm walking to work and taking the CTA around Chicago. So, <laughs> you know. but yeah, I didn't have any illusions that this was going to be a huge money maker. I think um, I wanted it to be the best it could be. I'd like it to be well, you know, well funded, and I want I don't want to. I mean, we're an underground film festival, but I don't want to do it on a small scale. I mean, we're not showing films in a church basement or something. It's try to present these films in the best screenings, um, you know, give them the best screening and showcase that we can within the budgets that we have to work with. Just like the films themselves, you know, you want to make the best film you can with the, within the budget that you have. And I don't want to get rich. I want to be a little comfortable. Sometimes I do think about someday having something to retire from, <laughs> you know, which I don't necessarily feel like I have right now. It's this, you know, at this point in my life, but I'm not planning to stop doing this anytime soon. You know, I've, I've spent most like half of my life working on this festival. So I'll be doing it for a while. And hopefully when, when I do decide I've had enough, the festival's in a position that somebody else can take over and it can continue. I think there's been some sort of underground film since there's been film. I mean, it's those things change a lot just as, as filmmaking has changed a lot. I mean, I've seen in these 25 years, I've seen huge changes. I mean, when we started the festival, all the submissions were coming on VHS tapes that people mailed to us. And then, that changed to like DVDs and now everything is online on Vimeo and there's absolutely like, there's no going to the post office to get the submissions. Like I turn on my computer in the morning and there they are. It's also changed, you know, in the exhibition when we started the first year, 
we showed 16 millimeter films and we showed video that was three quarter inch umatic videotape, like broadcast video. There was no such thing as digital video at that time. It was all analog. A few years later, thanks to uh, Stefan Avalos and, and Lance Wheeler and a film that they made called The Last Broadcast that we programmed, they, they had a deal with a projection company that if their film got into a film festival, that company would set up the digital projection system to show their they were one of the first all digital features. And we programmed it and we developed a relationship with the digital projection people. And so we were kind of early adopters in that sense. We were one of the first festivals to show digital video. Of course, now it's the other way around. Now everything is digital video. We show some 16 millimeter films, some 35. But I think this year at the festival, we're going to actually be showing two 35-millimeter films, um, both shorts. And, you know, there was a time where it was the challenge was, well, how do we bring digital video into these theaters and show it? Now the challenge is like, wait, how do we actually still show real film once in a while? <laughs> you know, it's, and I want to be able to show, like, all the formats. And I want to do thing, crazy things like expanded cinema, you know, Multi, we've had set up extra projectors in the theater to at different times or, you know, showing Super 8 in a theater that normally shows digital video. You know, and we're in a theater that I just actually went and saw the Avengers movie there last week. And now we're going to take it over for uh, five days of obscure, independent and underground and, and experimental films. But which is kind of a great because the same people that go to see things like the Avengers find out about the festival that way and come and, and get exposed to other kinds of films, films and things. So that's kind of an exciting part of what the way we do the festival as opposed to, you know, doing it in a venue that's already just showing experimental films to the converted, you know, we're, we're trying to like infiltrate and get people to see things that they might not see otherwise. You talked about the formats changing over the years. Has the content of the films changed over the years as well? Yeah, it has. When Jay and I started, like I said, he had been going to these horror film conventions. We were both readers of Film Threat magazine and Film Threat Video Guide and had read about, you know, people like Richard Kern and Nick Zed and that whole cinema of transgression scene from New York and these kind of pretty punk rock kind of movies that were had one foot in exploitation cinema and one foot in, in kind of a, a kind of experimental cinema and everything being deliberately provocative and, and shocking and things. And by the time Cuff started, you know, that whole cinema transgression scene had kind of already petered out. So we were showing films by people who were influenced by like the next generation. And I, I like, I call it post transgressive filmmaking, you know, or, or the way that like, you had post-punk bands that were influenced by the Sex Pistols, you know, then, and a few years later, you had bands that didn't really sound like punk bands, but that was their influence that what caused them to start making, making music. We had the same kind of thing happening with film. And after 25 years, of course, things are always going to change. It's like a new generation. I mean, there are people working on the festival staff who were born when I started the festival. So they don't have that frame of reference. They didn't grow up reading Film Threat. They find out about those things when they start learning about the history of the festival. And I, sh you know, 
pull out the box and show them the old magazines and programs and things. So as a result, things are going to change. You know, you've got new younger filmmakers who have different influences. Um, the fact that films are coming to us from all over the world now changes the, the content too, because an underground film made in China is going to be very different than an underground film made in Chicago or things. Yeah, there's a, a lot of changes. I mean, I think we're definitely less about trying to be deliberately all the time, although there's still there's still some of that. I like those kinds of films when they're done well. Um, I always want to be surprised, you know. John Waters was a big influence on us when we started too, and you know, just as his filmmaking career has changed radically over, you know, from Pink Flamingos through Hairspray and and everything he's done since then, that same kind of change has happened with the the content of the kind of films that we're showing. I also have different interests. You know, I'm twenty I'm twenty five years older, so of course my tastes are not quite the same as they were 25 years ago. I've seen more more films, get exposed to new things, and read more, cut out and, and gone to other festivals and seen things. We like things, though, that push boundaries of some kind, you know, whether they're formally or subject matter in documentaries. That it, It's hard to define, you know. It's like, it's, it's very much like the old joke about, I know pornography when I see it. I know an underground film when I see it. But I can't tell you, like, I can't give you a checklist and say, oh, it has to have these four qualities in this way, you know, and then I know it's an underground film. Now, you know, as a matter of fact, if somebody's trying to click all, all the boxes, you know, they're probably not going to make a very interesting underground film if they're just trying to imitate what they've seen other films do before. That's probably not going to work. Right, right. There's only one John Mortsugu. Somebody who makes a John Mortsugu film other than him is going to be... A... Exactly. You know, I mean, people compared Mortsugu to John Waters, and I don't think they're very very similar in... I mean, there's superficial similarities in, in like, the budget and some of the humor. I did, we just showed uh, Mod Fuck Explosion this past weekend, and I hadn't watched it in a long time, and I think it really holds up. But he's doing something very different. I mean, there's... There's things that reference like somebody like John Waters in there, but there's also things that are like influenced by like Godard and and art house tropes, you know, things that were he was taking from there and he's mixing it all up into his his own personal thing. It's kind of just his his own style. Yeah, you can't. I mean, anybody copying somebody else is not going to succeed at, at doing anything really worthwhile. You know, being influenced by something. That's different. You know, you can take steel and, and lift ideas from things, um, as you know very well from some of your, your past work, which has talked about that very thing with, you know, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can point out the in influences and things, but, you know, it, it creates something different. But it's interesting to see what where those influences came from and, and how he like lifted this from here and this from there and combined it into something and maybe didn't acknowledge it as much as he, he might've or could have it's the same with the festivals too. You know, like I never set out to imitate like Sundance or I think there's already a Sundance. And you know, like, if you tried to do that somewhere else, it's not going to be as in, you know, because they're already, they've already got that down. You know, like they've been doing that way longer than we 
we have, and they're going to, they've got more money to do it. Like Herschel Gordon Lewis, you know, not a particularly great filmmaker, but somebody that I find really inspiring the idea that, you know, he didn't have a lot of money to spend on his movies. So he had to do something that Hollywood either wouldn't do or couldn't do. And I kind of take the same approach with, with the festival. Like we we're here to program films for a large extent. Other festivals either won't show or can't show or, or, or even if they are films that other festivals show, the way we're combining, putting all of these kinds of films together in one place, some festivals might show a film or two like this, and they'll be like their one, or they have the one program of midnight movie type films or underground films or experimental films. And we've just, we're like, no, that that's the whole festival. And there might be a token, like straightforward narrative here and there that we like, but you know, we kind of, very counterintuitive that way. We're kind of doing almost the, the opposite of what you're supposed to do. And it seems to work. I mean, we've, we've had good audiences for over 25 years. I mean, the audiences have changed too, because let's face it, the people who are coming to cuff in the nineties for the most part are married and have kids and mortgages and don't go out as often as they used to. So you have to bring new audiences in and, you know, make the festival appealing to younger younger audiences. I'm like, maybe that means having a different kind of entertainment at the parties or, or something because, you know, suddenly we become, become the establishment, you know, that's kind of a, an ironic thing that, you know, the, the anti-establishment festival that's lasted 25 years by default becomes a, a form of establishment itself. And, you know, but if you keep open to new things, then you can keep it interesting, you know, and that's what I've, I've tried to do is like keep my self open to whatever new thing is happening out there and discovering new films and filmmakers and ideas and, and stuff and trying to always improve on what we did last year and the year before that and things. Well, if there's one thing that film festival directors or at least the good ones anyway, all have in common is that they want to share films with people. They want to expose them to something that they might not see otherwise. And I'm curious with this 25th year, what are some of those movies that you're showing this year that you're really excited for people to dig into? Our 25th year is a little, you know, it's a little unusual because of being the 25th year. We're not really looking back as a festival very often. But we do occasionally do things that are retrospective and um, looking towards our past a little bit. So this year, um, there is some of that, but there's also, like you said, some very exciting new new things. Um, I'm really excited about the film Craigslist All-Stars, uh, which is a film from uh, Amsterdam, directed by a young woman named Samira Alagaz. And she's a performance artist, primarily, her first real film she put an ad on craigslist where she wanted to she's a young attractive 24 year old woman put an ad on craigslist saying i want to meet meet people in their homes with a video with the camera and we'll the film is about how we will get to know each other and so she meets a bunch of met different strangers all men goes to their house with her camera and then has different conversations encounters and things, and she documents the whole experience. And it's very 
unusual film. Um, and it deals a lot with the, you know, ideas about sexuality and how men and women interact with each other and what people do when a camera is in front of them versus what they might not do without a camera and things. It's, it's a, that's a really interesting, challenging, super low budget film shot it on a consumer grade video camera. It's funny. It's disturbing. It's, uh, makes you think. So that's, that's one that I'm very excited about this year. Ben Russell's new, new feature, good luck. Ben is a Cuff alumni. I mean, I showed his very first six minute, 16 millimeter film in maybe 2001 or two. And he lived in Chicago for a while when he was in graduate school. So I got to actually know him a little bit better while he was here. He's since moved on. He's an itinerant filmmaker who travels the world. He shot Good Luck in Suriname in a copper mine. It was shot in um, Serbia and Suriname in two different mines in different parts of the world. And he went into the mines and got to know the workers and document their lives and what their days are like. Um, and it's a lot of, you know, it's a very artfully done film with a lot of slow, beautiful takes and playing beautiful camera work. It's very, almost completely the opposite in style to Craigslist All-Stars. Very formal, shot on like 35 millimeter or Super 16 and really good looking film. So that that's another thing I'm very excited about showing. That's a film that has played at some of the bigger, more prestigious film festivals around the world, but still has a very underground attitude and spirit to it. Come on, Brian, it's set in a mine. Of course it's underground. Literally, absolutely. Here's one that really stands out as far as something totally un- that you wouldn't see anywhere else, I don't think. This is a Canadian artist named John Raffman. It's a film called Dream Journal, and he used like a 3D modeling software to do these animate this very weird surreal animated film that supposedly is based on his subconscious like his dreams of thing this guy has the weirdest if these are real dreams these are the, the most bizarre dreams you can imagine and he's been working on this for a while it's um episodic so we're going to show like a 50 minute version of it but there's it can be broken up into different, you know, shorter pieces and longer pieces and very surreal. And there's, there's a dream logic to it. There's a narrative and it's kind of like this epic Homer-esque odyssey with this protagonist, but you, from one moment to the next, you never know what's going to happen. And it's just like a, like an exquisite corpse dream logic that's constantly morphing and shifting. And just when you think you've got it figured out, something totally random will happen. It totally shifts gears. It's really, really amazing. Yeah, it's kind of incredible. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to seeing that, and I'm really looking forward to the Q&A with that one. Sometimes you must just be looking forward to seeing the audience reaction to some of these things, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But we've had some really interesting, sometimes heated discussions at Q&As at Cuff in the past. Our closing film this year is called Future Language, The Dimensions of Bon Elmo. Um, and it's by a Chicago filmmaker, Lori Felker, who's one of the most talented filmmakers in the city. They've been showing her work at Cuff for a number of years, but this is her 
her first feature. It's a documentary about this New York no-wave musician, Von Elmo, who played in a no-wave band called Red Transistor in the 70s and early 80s and had kind of fallen into obscurity and she tracked him down and started making a movie about him. But the film t- is more than than just a biofilm about a, a rock musician. It's, you know, we've all seen that a million times. In the course of making the movie, it's a really a film is as much about Lori and her relationship with the, the subject of her film and how she gets kind of sucked into his world and how close she's let, wants to let herself get. I mean, Bond's a very prickly, unpredictable um, individual. And, and, you know, she had to question like, well, like how much of a fan of this guy's work am I? And she didn't make the film intending to have herself be in it the way she is, but she becomes a, a character in the film herself because it was, she really had to address those things. And I think there's a good chance. I had a phone conversation with Lori about an hour ago and, I think Vaughn may be coming from New York for the, sh- the screening in Chicago, which is going to be weird and bizarre, and that's going to be an interesting Q&A. <laughs> I mean, Laurie said like, there's, until he's actually on the, tr- the plane, she has no idea if he's really going to show or not, but <laughs> she said he's talking about it. <laughs> and he might, might end up playing the music at the after party. Too. <laughs> Another documentary that I'm excited about showing this year that I think could be potentially a little controversial is called the white world, according to Diabaric. And it's a Czech documentary about a Czechoslovakian working class neo-Nazi who's the filmmakers just got him to talk about his beliefs and his, his life. And it's not endorsing him. And he kind of comes off looking about as ridiculous as, I suspect most neo-Nazis actually come off if you get to know them. But um, the film takes a few surprising twists and turns, and I don't want to spoil it, but some things are get, get revealed at the end of the film that really um, cause him to put his own belief systems into question. So I think that'll be an interesting one, too. Although, unfortunately, the filmmakers, being Czechoslovakian, are not able to make it to, to Chicago for the screening. But very interesting weird movie um and of course the shorts programs are running the gamut from you know formal experiment mental films to um documentary shorts and narrative shorts with unusual subjects there's a great film from canada we're showing this called ape sodom narrated by david cronenberg and it's a very bizarre like this is kind of an elaborate i can't compare it to any other filmmaker but it's definitely the kind of short film that a festival like Cuff is designed for. It's, it's a weird dystopian future story where it seems to me like a parable for the, the world we actually are living in today, where the divide between the extreme wealth and extreme poverty and the way that the, the wealthy keep the working class at, under their thumb but it's done in a very bizarre, imaginative way. Like I said, with Cronenberg doing narration, and I can't d- describe it in a way that's going to do it justice. So you really have to see it. And since you're on the jury, you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Full disclosure. 
full disclosure, I will be I think, there. I think it's totally fine to to let the the listeners know that you were on the festival jury this year, and I'm happy to have you do it. I think it's going to be a really interesting jury. I think um, you and the other jurors are all extremely smart people with you know interesting perspectives on film. I also think you're all quite a bit different from each other. So I think there will be some very strong opinions and hopefully at the end you'll all have reached some sort of consensus that we'll be surprised by seeing what the jury finds the most interesting, especially since at Cuff we don't have strict criteria for the awards. You just are given the six awards to give to whatever films. So it changes so much from one year to the next. And, you know, I do, it's not like, oh, I know there's going to be a documentary feature and a documentary short and which are, you know, and a narrative feature and a narrative short. We did that in the early days of the festival. But this this more free approach to the awards seems to be in keeping with the spirit of the festival more. And it also gets harder sometimes to even know what what genre to classify films in, you know. There's films like, is that a narrative? Is it a documentary? I don't know. I know. I stopped listing the, those things in the program book. When the audience comes to the festival and picks up a program, it doesn't say this This is a narrative and this is a documentary. And they're all just films. And we, we trust that our audience is smart enough to figure those things out for themselves. I give a lot of uh, credit you know, to our audience to like not feel that they need to have things handed to them easily. You know, that they can work for it a little bit and think about what they're watching and, and analyze it. Um, Kavan Dela Cruz is coming this year. Uh, Kavan is a Filipino director who uh, we actually showed his last feature on opening night two years ago. No, three years ago now, three years ago. A film called Ruined Heart that Christopher Doyle, Wong Kar Wai's longtime cinematographer shot. Uh, this is, a very different film than that, but Kavan is kind of known as the Filipino godfather of digital cinema. He's made an unbelievably large number of films. I can't remember how many now, but it's like, it was kind of astounding features and shorts and things. And he's also an accomplished pianist and a published poet and novelist. And I don't know how the guy ever sleeps. He does so much. And he's an amazing character. So I'm super excited to have him, not just show his film again, but he, he's coming to Chicago. So that's going to be great. He's so much fun. But Alapato is his new feature. It's called Alapato, The Very Brief Life of an Ember. And it's kind of a, a crime drama whodunit about a gang of kids, like criminal kids in the slums of Manila who um, rob a bank and it goes wrong and their leader ends up in jail and Gets this is all, and this is all set in like a, a near future. It's it's set in the year 2025, so it's sort of a futuristic, more dystopian Philippines than probably is a, actually. Maybe it's a commentary on Duarte, and then it becomes a whodunit to see where you know, like their leader gets out of prison, and then they have to find where the money that they stole is after all this time and things. So. Very strange movie. Um, if you want to see a five-year-old kid smoking a cigarette and firing a gun, this is a movie for you. <laughs> well, one thing that I appreciate that you guys do 
is, you know, you said like, we don't look backwards too often, you know, but you are showing films by people who you had shown some of their first films or continue to show films. We just had, um, Suki Holly and Mike Galinsky on the show uh, just a few weeks ago. And I know you're showing a new one by then that we talked about. Oh, I see. yeah. Michael and Suki have been in the festival or maybe 10 or 11 times now in the 25 years, just about every feature that they've made and a few shorts here and there. Uh, their first feature half cocked played our second year at one of the award in 1995, and they were here last year with All the Rage, and then they're coming back with um, In Protest, which is a feature documentary comprised of footage that they shot over the last 30 years at various political protests around the country from the 90s up to today. And yes, I mean, that's great. I like to follow the careers of the filmmakers that we really like and champion. I mean, that sometimes people come and go like I don't see somebody's work for a while or some things don't, don't necessarily like a new film by somebody might not fit a particular year, but whenever possible, I like to, you know, keep that consistency going and people develop a following. Like I think there are people in Chicago now who can just know like, Oh, it's a new Michael Golinski film. And I'm interested in seeing that. And we're also doing for our 25th year, we are doing some retrospectives of, Films by Craig Baldwin, who who kind of helped inspire us early on. You know, when when Jay, Craig Baldwin was one of the contemporary underground filmmakers that was making work right then that we knew about. Like we were like, oh, he's in San Francisco. He's made Tribulation '99. We saw that. You know, our second year we showed uh, Sonic Outlaws here in Chicago, which we're going to be showing at the festival this year. We're, Craig is going to be our guest of honor, and it, that seemed really appropriate for a 25th year to invite somebody who helped inspire us. We, I have had guests of honor in the past, like John Waters, Kenneth Anger, people over the years. We don't do it every year now, but when whenever the time seems right and there's something somebody um, is available, and we're interested in, and Craig definitely was some somebody that was on my radar for a while, and it just. Um, I think he needs to get recognized for not just what he's done as a pro- as a filmmaker, which is incredible, but as a programmer at other cinema, um, and you know, getting this kind of work seen by more people through like his DVD label and things. I think um, it's really you know he's really important to us. Uh, one film we haven't talked about yet. Again, getting without being nostalgic it did seem appropriate to look back a little bit for our 25th year. And the film that we're, we're opening the festival with is a documentary about the Chicago record label and record store wax tracks records. And for me personally, that was a perfect film to open the the 25th year with because when I was in my twenties and first moved to Chicago for college, even before that, when coming to Chicago, going to the wax tracks record store, kind of helped expose me to the idea of what an, the underground was. When I was a teenager, I discovered punk rock and other related offshoots of music from there. And my interest in film kind of grew out of that, like getting exposed to certain kinds of music and things. Then you follow that to like, well, what, what movies or books or whatever that these other, that these people are making and, or influence them. And and Wax Trex was a place 
where, you know, it's really hard to describe that to people today who are used to being able to have access to everything through the internet. But before there were, you know, when, when you didn't have the internet and the, the only way to find out about these more obscure, you know, it's like track them down. Like you had, or, you know, I could even say before there was VCRs, if you're interested in film, you had to go to a theater. Like they were, you know, these calendar houses that showed double features of classic films. And that was the really the only way you were going to see, see these old great films. So you would be waiting, you'd reading about things. And finally, like, Oh, I heard about Dario Argento and I found a, you know, someplace showing it, or you find a bootleg video or something. And now, you know, you can talk about a filmmaker or a band 20 minutes later, you go on the internet, you probably can have access to their entire filmography or discography. But wax tracks was so important to me at that time to go there. And like, I would spend hours in that store. If I even without money to spend, just looking at album covers and learning about things and like reading the back or, or, reading zines and you'd buy like a punk zine, but there, you know, there'd be movie reviews or things in it too. And that would lead you down another path towards something. And like we mentioned film thread already, um, you were doing cashiers do cinema a little later than that, but they were in the same part of that same culture of, you know, that stuff is so important is that, you know, and finding like which voices you could relate to, like, all right, this writer is, somebody who has a perspective I trust. I'm going to follow what they're, what they're doing and things. I mean, and I'm sure there's variations of that that still happen today, but it's, it's, it's different, you know? So by showing the wax tracks documentary on our 25th year, it's in another way of acknowledging where the, the roots of where this festival came from and the spirit that was kind of there from the beginning, you know, like these were the, the influences, Craig Baldwin, Wax Tracks Records, punk rock, industrial music, underground culture and books. And I used to work at Quimby's bookstore here in Chicago, selling zines and things. So that was like, all that stuff was really part of this. It's like our third year of doing the festival. We got really lucky because we were able to get in contact with Roger Ebert. And we told him we were, the you know, we had started this new film festival. We'd been around for a couple of years and we pitched him on, would you consider writing something about, you know, about our festival for the Chicago sun times? And he said, sure, send me some, some films and I'll see what I can do. We called every single filmmaker that was in the festival that year and said, here's Roger Ebert's address. Send him your movie. He got inundated with VHS tapes it's obvious that he didn't have the time to watch every single film, but he looked at everything at least enough to be able to write a lengthy article about the festival and the films in it. And he seemed genuinely excited by what we were doing. And it was huge for us. Like it, it put the festival on another level as soon as that happened. And our opening night that year, uh, we were premiering the first feature by a, filmmaker named Sarah Jacobson. And Sarah had been at the festival with her, with her short film, our very first year. She had made this feature film, Mary Jane's Not a Virgin Anymore, on 16 millimeter in San Francisco, featured people like Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys in it. She was a student of George Kuchar's and definitely making a 
film in a very underground spirit. And when we had all these filmmakers send their work to Roger Ebert, she was the only one who didn't. And Roger Ebert called her up and said, like, I'm writing about this festival and I need to write about the opening film. And she's like, well, I didn't send it to you because I'm not, it's not finished yet. And Roger Ebert said, I'm Roger Ebert. I've seen a work in progress before. <laughs> and so she said, okay, she sent him her work in progress tape and he wrote some very nice things about her film in the, in the sometimes and she went to the film market in New York with a quote from Roger Ebert about her film. And this is something that would never happen today. But she went to the film market in New York. She had a quote from Roger Ebert. Sundance invited her film to, to the Sundance Film Festival after it played at Chicago Underground. These days, that would never happen. Sundance would never consider a film that had premiered at, at a small regional festival in Chicago first. But that was great for Sarah, great for the festival to have Roger write about things. I mean, it, Unfortunately, both Sarah and Roger have since passed away. And Sarah was a, a huge uh, supporter and champion of the festival in those early years. Like she, when she was taking her films around to fe other festivals and meeting filmmakers, she would tell everybody, like, Chicago Underground's my favorite film festival. You need to send your film there. She was never part of the festival staff, but she was like our, our missionary, our evangelist out there, you know, spreading the word for us. So. One of my favorite memories was seeing her introduce, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains at the Chicago Underground. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. You know, and she did all that work to track that film print down. You know, it hadn't been seen in years. Um, she wrote that great piece for the Beastie Boys magazine about it and, and introduced that. And it, that was a great screening. And her and Sam Green made that documentary about, about it that, um, showed on the independent film channel that had footage from Kaffee in it. It's amazing. Yeah. Another thing that was different in the, the early years of the festival is that the year that we started Chicago Underground, Todd Phillips and Andrew Gerland in New York started the New York Underground Film Festival. And we didn't know anything about them or that they were going to do that. We called Film Threat and said, we're starting this festival. It's called the Chicago Underground Film Festival. And would you be willing to be a sponsor. And they said, Oh, there's these guys in New York that are starting an underground film festival too. And for a long time, there was a lot of rivalry between the two. And sometimes it was a friendly rivalry and sometimes it wasn't. Right. But I think that it really was important that there were two festivals like that, because if you just had one, that's kind of an interesting thing. But as soon as you had two festivals that were programming this kind of work and, and identifying themselves this way and, and, how, then you had like, it became a movement, like a scene developed really quick because it wasn't like these films played once at this festival and then everybody goes back to their prospective hometowns and making their work in these tragic, you know, you had two events, different parts of the country, different times of year with similar programming aspects, not entirely the same, but enough of the same films would show at both that people would meet and network. And then you had people like Skiz Sizek in Baltimore who started MicroCineFest and, and other festivals started popping up around the country that were in this similar spirit and it helped create a scene. And microcinemas that were modeled after what Craig Baldwin was doing in San Francisco and things happening. What eventually started to happen, though, is that 
some festivals were starting that were just calling themselves an underground film festival because they were maybe in a city that already had an independent film festival. So they just had to use another name. The vision of what the underground was maybe got lost a little bit where it didn't like one underground film festival and another underground film festival might not really have that much to do with each other programming wise. There's still, you know, there's some, um, the Sydney underground film festival seems to be programming in a similar vein to what, what cuff does the Boston underground to some extent, but they're a little bit more of a genre fest. I think they're programming leans a little bit more towards the kind of films that you'd see at, at Fantasia or Fantastic Fest and those sorts of things. It's a really good festival. But when there were these, there was that, that period of the nineties where this whole like underground film boom kind of, you know, and it's a phrase that goes in and out of fashion, right? In the sixties, underground film was a, a word that, you know, critics use to describe the Kachar brothers and Brackage and, and these kind of, experimental filmmakers in New York and there's a certain type of experimental filmmaking like Ken Jacobs and people that were around at that time. And there was like a little bit of a countercultural edge to it. By the seventies underground wasn't as fashionable and things were much more institutionalized. And you had things that were like structuralism and people like Michael Snow and things. It was, it, things were focused on, on uh, the Academy and, and these it was a very different kind of vibe. Kind of you know, underground, kind of came back in the '80s with the cinema transgression and those sorts of things. That countercultural spirit, which somebody like Craig Baldwin, he, he knows the formal experimental history and studied under Bruce Connor and things, but he's also interested in like this kind of grittier, like DIY underground spirit of things that I think is really important to that never gets completely lost. You know, I don't, things go in cycles, you know, there's a dialectic and underground goes in and out of fashion a little bit. I, I think it's happened at the festival. I mean, there were a few years where, like I said, the audience had gotten a little older and, and our, we hadn't, we had to kind of develop a new audience. And there was a, maybe a three or four year period where I was like, Oh, does this run its course? Like our, our audiences have kind of leveled off. We're not really growing. Yeah. And and then younger people started discovering the festival and being really excited by it and getting involved and introducing me to new filmmakers that I didn't know about before. And it kind of took on a, you know, a second life again. I mean, not that it was ever like in danger of like completely dying or anything, but it was, it was feeling like it was preaching to the converted a little bit. And then it got exciting again. <laughs> you know, So like the last, six years i think we've been on a roll each year the attendance has increased a little bit from people when i'm out in chicago now and i meet new people if i say oh i'm the programmer for the chicago underground film festival there was a time when the response would have been what's that now when i'm out and i say that the response is oh i've heard of that maybe they haven't attended but they know that exists you know they're like oh i i know about that tell me more (laughs) you know this is the thing there's idea you know if you you become accepted just by virtue of the fact that you've stayed at it for so long that eventually people just go like oh i guess they know what they're doing (laughs) which is you know yeah for working at a at a video store and and like sneaking off to use the uh 
the copying machine after hours or print things out on the on the uh, company printer, you know, for faxing things to to the program designer and things. Uh, and now, you know, we have an office and you know, it's kind of, you know, but, you know, the trick is to keep, is to grow and uh, expand those things, that infrastructural stuff without losing the spirit of what, what you intended to do from the beginning. And just, I think we've succeeded at that. And hopefully the audiences do too. We also try to make this festival fun. That's a really important part of it. Like in fun in an unexpected way to where some ex- strictly experimental film festivals and I really enjoy going to them, but some of them are a little, there's a little bit of a, an academic kind of vibe to them where you kind of feel like if you aren't a cinema studies major who has read the, you know, and studied the canon of the history of experimental film that you'll never understand what's going on here, what we're talking about or things. And, I've want to, I, I want the people who know those things to have a good time when they attend the festival and see work that they, they find interesting. But I also want the guy off the street who just said, Oh, that looks weird. What's, what's going on there. And like that, that poster looks interesting to me and I'll take a shot at a chance. You know, we, uh, this Saturday at, at the music box when we were showing mod fuck explosion, a guy came in to see, Ghost Stories, the movie that was playing in the other theater. He had bought a ticket and he came over to our table and started talking to us. And and a few minutes later, he went over to the manager of the music box and said, um, I bought a ticket for Ghost Stories, but now I want to see Mod Fuck Explosion. Can I exchange it? <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know, we, we've made a convert. I, I didn't get a chance to talk to him afterwards. It's like, so what did you think of Mod Fuck Explosion? But, but um, you know, he gave it a chance. You know, we, we made him feel like you know, we were like, you know, Ghost Stories is going to be here for like at least till Thursday. <laughs> you know, you've got a chance to see that one. When was the last time you saw a film called Mod Fuck Explosions? Also, like having the parties that, you know, in keeping this kind of punk rock kind of spirit around around the festival, you know, like having after parties with, with rock bands or DJs and things that are like, get a little, you know, maybe... A, it's not like your wine and cheese soiree kind of film festival. It's, you know, do shots of Malort and you know, listen to a punk band. You know. Once again, thanks to Brian Wendor for taking the time to talk to me. And be sure to go over to cuff.org to find out more about this year's film festival to buy your tickets. And I look forward to seeing you. Enough to longer kind of party. That's a party at the dead end alley. Yeah, he told him what to celebrate. And I met William Butler Yates. Sunday night dance party, summer 1988. At first I thought it might be William Blake. Yeah, 
state of them all. Oh, we met him at some suburban St. Paul Mall. Young St. Teresa came to Holly. But I wasn't even at that party. I'd already moved out to New York City. Yeah, when Judas went up and kissed him. And I almost got sick. I guess I knew it was coming. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.